Welcome to the Wildflower Bee Farm Podcast. I'm Hank Sveck. This podcast is about helping you uh, learn and understand the different trials and tribulations of converting a 50-acre farm back to nature and a honeybee sanctuary, and how we struggle to continue to be servant beekeepers. Here's this week's episode. This is being recorded on March 8th, 2023. Are the beehives going to just blow up with activity? So this is a concerning time of the year. When you look at the long-term trend in the weather here on the farm, or at least in the, in the geographical area, there's a idea that it's not going to get higher than 5 degrees Celsius for the next two weeks and nights below freezing. So minus three to I think minus seven on Friday. So the question is what's going to happen in the highs? Because just the other day, if you follow us on Instagram, you'll notice we had a incredible number of hives bringing in pollen and nectar. Now, again, it's somewhat of a mystery. We're not sure where that is coming from. Uh, some of it's from hairy bittercrest. Some of it's from we see some pussy willows blooming, but we don't have that many. So there must be another source fairly close to the farm because they were flying at like six degrees Celsius, which is cold and the wind was blowing. So they pretty much would have to be flying close to the ground. And we saw that um, we don't see maples opening yet. They're, they're, the buds are ready to burst, but they're not open. So that's that's not happening. So we're really confused. But the point of it all is uh, the, the queens obviously started laying eggs. We can't find any real data on if the winter bees are successful at foraging. Remember to pick up my latest book, What Grandpa Learned from His Honeybees, the little book to be smart with your money and help the environment on Amazon or Audible. Pick it up today. There's very little science I could find on whether or not the winter bees are capable of collecting pollen nectar. And I would think they are, and they've adapted, but it's really hard to understand and see because remember, the winter bees and the regular worker bees look pretty much the same. So I'll keep digging on that science fact, but the point of all it is the bees were foraging the other day, and we actually saw some bees foraging the end of February. Now, now that's just bizarro world. So that either means that, you know, 20 some days ago, more than that, 40 some days ago, because the, the bees, uh, when they hatch, take on jobs inside the hive, that somehow these bees, you know, the queen sort of knew we were going to get warm weather and um, started laying eggs. So I don't know what's going on. I have no clue. And if you do, perhaps you could, you know, fill me in. But as it turns out, Many of the hives seem to have incredible volumes of bees. And it, it sure looks like that the uh, queens have laid enough eggs so that, you know, the bees are ready to take on the pollen and the nectar of the early uh, wallflowers and also the trees that are going to start to bloom, including maples and willows and all of that, which should be out in the next couple of weeks. But again, if we get nights below zero, what's going to happen to those sources? So the microclimate idea came up because you know, we, we talk about microclimate and how much of a micro are we talking about? We know from the sensors that we have. So we have sensors in a hive 
that has no bees in it and we have sensors in one hive that is the only hive that didn't make it so far and we can tell that there's a difference now the hive that didn't make it there's probably wax and other things in there that are maybe insulating it a little bit so when it warms up it will take longer to cool down but um, there really are when you walk the farm depending on the wind direction you get a real um, variety of temperatures and conditions so you can go from chilly and cold and biting wind to you go to a section and all of a sudden it's so warm you want to take your jacket off uh, all within five minutes so it's it would make sense to me that we have these microclimates that not only impacts the bees but impacts the vegetation so that the bees are able to go out and do some you know really limited foraging but perhaps enough to save them because again as a servant beekeeper we don't feed our bees anything even honey and i know that's a bit controversial because people would say well if you have frames of honey why wouldn't you help your bees well the problem we have with all of this is that um, if we're trying to have uh, um, our hives survive and adapt to what's happening in the climate we need to let them do that and so if i were to provide them with honey um, they wouldn't go out and forage they wouldn't go out and try to find things right now that apparently they're able to find so that is difficult you know as a beekeeper to to, to walk around and know that some of these hives are light particularly the five frame nukes we have five frame nukes that have survived the winter and that's another issue because other than a few uh, stretches this winter where it was minus 20 most of the time it was a bit warmer than normal this winter which would explain why some of the five frame nukes did not require the same amount of resources now they're not out of the woods yet because we're talking probably another two weeks to go anyway before there's really a lot of pollen and nectar out there although again as i said they're collecting it now so that's sort of that dilemma with the microclimate and i think by spreading the bees all over the farm we're getting a real variety of exposure but here's the problem what works this year may not work next year because of the temperature variations and the conditions if we can keep the habitat somewhat the same then at least we're controlling for that and that leads me to our final point on diverse habitat so on the farm here we we planted initially when we started the project many clovers in one section and then we planted wildflowers and tall grass prairie and then we had a section of our forest where the green ash had died because of the green ash bore and, and sort of a a uh, meadow-like situation occurred where we have a, a rather large section that is just jam-packed with goldenrod and other wildflowers and so that's sort of the composition of the farm and the trees of course so we have maple we have willow uh, we have different trees that bloom and now we're seeing basswood and other trees pop up that we didn't plant that were obviously brought in by you know wildlife or by the wind um, and so it's it's quite a diverse um, sort of um, ecological system that we have there so so that's pretty exciting but I think we might want to look at some other plants that might help them more in the spring although we're pretty much finished I, I, I mentioned last time that I uh, frost planted uh, 200 pounds of uh, red double-cut clover 
And again, that will primarily help the non-honeybee pollinators like bumblebees and, and, and other uh, types of wildlife. And that hopefully will finish our planting requirements to, to, to get the farm to a place where it's going to eventually be self-sustaining. So the, the flowers bloom, the seeds blow around and eventually become part of the ecosystem and the strongest will survive. We're seeing the evening primrose that we talked about being some of them seven, eight, nine feet high, which I've not seen before to just to get above all the other uh, grasses out there. So it's a, it's going to be an interesting year to see what happens with them. The final point has to do on splitting because we do as servant beekeepers, we do split our hives in the spring, meaning we look at the best genetics and we we take some frames and simply put them in another house or another um, bee house and then the bees either um, you know encourage the queen cells to hatch or they will create queen cells if it's a walk away split and then you know the the family continues those genetics continue and we're self-sustaining so this will be a, another significant year the problem happens though is if we have say we went into the winter with 29 hives let's say we come out with 25 right now we're at about 28 probably 27 because there's one i suspect isn't going to make it so we have 27 hives um what do we split how do we select if they're all coming out healthy um you know who are we going to split now mary suggests we just split all of them which we could do which would get us to about 54 if we have enough boxes but the point of all that is is to, to be sustainable i think here to be sustainable on 50 acres probably somewhere between 10 and 20 hives spread out over the property would be ideal um so that's the challenge i think i may split you know if, what we would call survival hives anybody that survived the winter because even the hives that don't look strong in april and may maybe the best hives to propagate because of their ability to adapt to our microclimate so so that's sort of where we're going with that whole process and i will keep you posted on the splitting because we'll probably be starting that depending on the weather sometime in late april probably early may just a final thought i discussed it a little bit last time we have uh, reached an agreement to purchase 95 acres that had been clear-cut logged in um, Livingston Cove, Nova Scotia. We're going to be adding clovers next winter, uh, clover seed for frost seeding. We're going to do an inventory of the trees on the property. There are a number of seedlings starting out on their own, so we're going to support that and move on with that project. This year, I may put a swarm hive, catching hive, on that property and one other property to see if there's some wild of what some call feral bees but if there are bees in the community there there may be some beekeepers close by and i have to keep track of that because that would probably be swarms from their hives um, i'm going to do that uh, uh, in different parts of the province i have another uh, couple of spots i can put some um, some empty hives in hopes of attracting uh, swarms and i'll keep you posted on that it's a bit of an extension of our of our process and the intelligence and the research we're doing here on the farm to learn about you know, turning a 50-acre farm back over to nature and what are the impacts on the on the area and how you can do that in other climates. The Livingston Cove property is probably 100 meters from the ocean, so it's going to be a very different kind of climate. It's also high up in the sense it's on a sort of a hill that goes up from the road, and it's going to be an interesting experience to try to understand 
um, how to bring back natural pollinators by introducing wildflowers and clovers because clovers I think are one of the best things we can do for wildlife but also from an ecological standpoint to pull um, CO2 and to put nitrogen back into the soil and, and reclaim the soil after what's been done to it. We have a project, Eco Footprint Credits, that we'll be talking about in future podcasts. Um, still working on the logistics of that. That's going to probably not be announced until later in the uh, late spring. So, back to this topic. Um, let me know how you're doing. Please, if you're listening to the podcast, review us on Apple iTunes, send comments, send, send your ideas. Uh, book continues to do well, What Grandpa Learned from His Honeybees. If you've got youngsters and you want to get them on the right track to understanding a bit about bees or grandchildren, and also you want to help them with their investment ideas and being good with their money, uh, Mary and I are quite proud of this, of this effort. You have an amazing day, and we'll talk to you again next week.